very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to all parts of tonight's interview and all of our material, you know what to do. Just go to VeritasRadio.com, click on the subscribe button, and immediately you will receive your login. You will have access to all our seasons, starting from December of 2008 and all our future interviews. So, stop delaying. Give yourself the gift of truth. And tonight we discuss ufology from an anthropological and evolutionary perspective with our special guest, Jordan Hofer, author of the book Evolutionary Ufology, right now on Veritas. Jordan Hofer is a former university instructor of human evolution and serves as a mutual UFO network MUFON research specialist in anthropology. He is also an author and has written a book titled Evolutionary Ufology, which is tonight's focus on his theories of the evolution of extraterrestrials and what he believes their motivations may be for abducting people. He has also recently written a young adult fiction novel titled Saucerville that incorporates famous UFO and abduction cases and his theories on alien activity. His website is linked at veritasradio.com. And directly from Salem, I believe, Salem, Oregon, I'm privileged to welcome Jordan Hofer to Veritas. Hello, Jordan, and welcome. Hello, Mel. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, and as I was telling you offline, the book, bit unorthodox, bit non-traditional. I've read dozens and dozens of books, but I don't think anybody has taken taken the time and, and the resources to look at the evolutionary perspective on more of a Darwinian method. Is that what you tried to accomplish? Absolutely, yeah. That was That was at the heart of the book. And what motive, well, first of all, you came from academia. I always have, it's a treat for me whenever I have somebody who comes from academia, knowing that, (laughs) (laughs) let let me just put it this way, you know, you're not allowed to discuss the paranormal. People lose their jobs for talking crazy talk, but something happened in, correct me if I'm wrong, something happened in late January, 2007, the, the, the challenge you'll your, it challenged your worldview and, and, and your straight scientific interpretation of the natural universe. Let's start from there. What happened? Yeah, it sure did. Um, my best friend, I've been friends with him now for like, oh gosh, over, over 35 years. 
And uh, one night... Uh, oh, please, can you, re- you repeat that? For some reason, I didn't get the last 10 seconds. Oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, my friend of uh, about 35 years saw a triangular UFO, a black triangular UFO, that uh, flew low over his house. And it was so low that it actually was like rattling the windows and so forth. And he got a good, you know, a really good look at this thing. It wasn't like, you know, some, uh, you know, just some shiny lights off in the distance or something. I mean, he really got a good look at it. And uh, at first, you know, like you said, that happened in 2007. I was still in academia. And so I kind of wrote it off. You know, and which which is a terrible thing for a best friend to do, and it was it wasn't until I got out of academia in 2009 that I realized, you know, gosh, I should have listened to him. I should, you know, it felt kind of like I'd betrayed him in a way, and uh, so I did listen to him and I did read the report and everything, and it's uh, that's 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 what turned me around. Um, being out of academia can really open your mind can really open your mind. <laughs> That's what everybody tells me. There's so much a, bi- a big world out there. So your closest friend, your dad and your daughter, had all witness UFOs. How could you not believe them? How, could, how would you feel if he had seen a UFO and they did not believe you? I would feel utterly betrayed. I would want the people that I know the most, the best, to uh, believe me, <laughs> you know, if I actually saw such a thing. Um, yeah. So due to budget cuts, uh, you are laid off from your university teaching job. Your, uh, you know, your, your world changed drastically and, and you wanted to know what you were dealing with. Right. You know, from a condescending skeptic, and that's a good term, to committed researcher, you join MUFON, and everybody who's listening to us know about MUFON. And on the second segment, I'd like to discuss a bit of MUFON and, and uh, Bob Bigelow's relationship with, with the entity and so on, but we leave that for later. You join MUFON, and you became a research uh, specialist. By the way, hello to, to my friend Keith from MUFON, Oregon. Very good man. I know he works with you. And you became a research specialist in anthropology. Now, that's a big leap from university to jump into MUFON. Now tell me about that transition. That, as I said before, that transition um, was really brought about by not being in the academic world. And, you know, as soon as I was out of there, I realized that I had a lot of stuff knocking around in my head, including my friend's sighting. And uh, I, I, I was able to to take a look at ufology from a different point of view, because I'd been, you know, studying and teaching human evolution for years, and uh, I, I thought I thought it might be best just to, you know, start there from what I knew and attempting to use that to uh, figure out some stuff in ufology. And you say you do not believe in UFOs; you, you accept their physical existence in natural reality. Beautiful heart, real. How do you reconcile your newfound knowledge with your background in science and, and academia? Oh, well, that's that, that's really easy. Uh, for one thing, academia simply just doesn't even deal with this kind of thing. Um, what 
what I did moving from an academic to a more ufology point of view is I read a lot of books, a lot of books on ufology. And I found some specific cases that I thought were pretty much just totally believable. And uh, some some authors, too, who I think are totally legit. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a change where my mind was really allowed to be opened up. And I was also on kind of a mission to try to figure out, you know, what, what the heck is going on? What did my friends see? And, and, and so forth. Now, I'm a little confused because I know a lot of these events happened 2007 and so on, but you had your own sighting at 7.30 p.m. on December the 1st, 2001. What happened between 2001 and 2007 that you were still a skeptic? Oh, um, uh, that's that's easy. I was I was in academia. Oh, so uh, by by force? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, like you said, you do not talk about stuff like that in academia. They call it crazy talk. You know, they even did it to John Mack. They called him Macko Wacko. Yeah. Uh, you know, which has no respect. Um, so yeah, it's, like I said, as soon as I got out of it, I was just able to uh, open my mind and start asking some questions that I'd never been able to do before. Wasn't there a professor within your institution that devoted, especially you were in Oregon, it's a Bigfoot country to many people. It was a professor who spent, what, maybe 5% of the time, wasn't he a professor in anthropology? So studying this could have been, you know, useful to the institution. And he devoted, what, about 5% of the time. Was he let go? Uh, okay, you're talking about Professor Grover Krantz, who taught. I think so. Uh, yeah, he taught at Western Washington, and um, he wasn't let go. But his entire life, he's, he 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 passed on a few years back. His entire life, um, I mean, he was he was an incredible scientist. He wrote great books about Neanderthal, uh, about the uh, evolution of Homo erectus, and so on. And yeah, he spent 5% of his time studying Bigfoot using the tools of uh, physical anthropology. And uh, for that, he, his, his career was harmed severely. He, he was denied tenure. Uh, he was not able to move up the ladder. And uh, yeah, he was basically treated... Um, um, he was basically treated like uh, more like a more or less like a kind of, kind of an embarrassment, really. But uh, I, I knew people who knew Grover Krantz personally, and they said he was not only a fantastic teacher; um, he was a, he was a brilliant evolutionist and a really nice guy. So yeah, when I when I hear stuff being said about him that's bad, it kind of ticks me off. <laughs> well, that only happened. That not only happens to people who looked into Bigfoot or UFOs, but you know anybody who works in the medical research uh, it, it, universities, if they find something that could revolutionize or find a cure, you know what happens to them in energy, in, in the medical industry, uh, you name it. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some other professors that worked in academia who were also let go or they were shunned or became persona non grata. Why is it? Why is academia so close-minded in some ways and they pretend to be so open-minded in other ways? Uh, my, okay, so my, my true opinion is it's, it's politics and career climbing. 
I think that, I think that's the answer. What about receiving grants? Because a lot of well, the grants. Yeah. Go ahead. Exactly. That, there's there's that too. I mean, there, there's there's right think and there's wrong think in academia. Well, Bigfoot. I mean, how can that be detrimental <laughs> to any? To any research, I can understand, look, UFOs, if you're researching right. UFOs and all of a sudden you come in contact with with a craft and you realize, wait a second, you know, what are we doing flying this tin cans for the last 100 years when we could actually have anti-gravity propulsion here with electromagnetism and so on and so forth? That could be detrimental to the established authority. But Bigfoot, but what's the problem with Bigfoot? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, To be honest with you, I used to teach Bigfoot, I would talk about Grover Krantz, and basically what I would tell the students is I, I, I would be giving them a warning. I say, you know, if you've got an imagination, just keep it to yourself if you want to succeed in academia. Um, Bigfoot, I think Bigfoot actually is good because it opens up uh, discussions about uh, um, older species of apes that have you know, now gone extinct, like the, the largest species ever, Gigantopithecus black eye, which went extinct about half a million years ago. And a lot of people think that, that that's Bigfoot. Well, you know, I mean, you know, whether or not you want to get into all about Bigfoot or whatever, it's still a good learning experience because, like I said, you can talk about other apes. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a... There, there's a lot you can't talk about in academia, <laughs> a lot. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of two, two persons now, Dr. Leo Sprinkle. You probably know who he is. Yeah. You know, he also, even when we did our interview a couple of years ago, he cried on the show because he really misses psychology. He was a professor for many years, and many people who were claiming to have been abducted by, let's say, extraterrestrials were coming to him. So on his private time, not even using, you know, college time, uh, he was trying to help. And, you know, he was more or less let go for that reason. Then I'm thinking also of uh, not a an, uh, somebody from academia, but David Politis. You probably know who he is. I'm missing 411. The books, thousands of people are lost every single year yes. from national parks. And it's, it's unfathomable to me that the national parks or the Bureau of, uh, of, 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 the, of Interior does not have a database to continue tracking the missing. I mean, imagine if you, I know you're a parent, I'm a parent too, if you lose one of our children and they don't have them on a list somewhere, who's going to be looking for them? So this is why I bring Bigfoot. I'm not a, a big uh, researcher when it comes to, to Bigfoot. As a matter of fact, I, I hardly even discuss it. But, you know, when it comes to missing people and and in your your background in anthropology do you think that bigfoot may be a reality after all well you know i i it, it's i I'll, I'll never say it's impossible <clears throat> what I, what i can tell you is that there is no fossil record of apes evolving in the americas none zero uh, according to the fossil record, apes have never been here. The, the first apes to arrive here were us. <laughs> um, so, where was I going with that? I apologize. No, that's okay. I mean, we're just talking, discussing Bigfoot. How did how did he come here? If we were the first apes to come here, 
Yeah, see, it would have had to have, you know, come here sometime prior to half a million years ago. And if it had, you know, come from Asia half a million years ago or whatever, we we would certainly see uh, fossils somewhere of this thing. And that's 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 my position. I mean, I I, I can also be very open minded and say, well, you know, maybe they're really really intelligent cryptids that uh, hide their remains. I don't, you know, it's a possibility. Your daughter, your dad, your best friend. Tell me about your daughter. What did she see? Well, the first one that she saw was a red rectangle, and it was it was heading south. And uh, she, she saw it go behind a tree, and then it disappeared completely. She said that it, she couldn't see it behind the branches, and uh, when, where it would have come out the other side, where she would have seen it, it didn't. Um, so yeah, we had uh, we had Keith uh, come on down to Salem, and he, he uh, went through the case with her, and uh, it was an unknown. You know, I've I've read about other. Uh, big red rectangles, so they're out there. That was her first sighting. She had another sighting about uh, a few months ago of a red object moving uh, very quickly from, I believe, the, uh, let's see, that would be from the south to the north. Um, and uh, anyway, Keith Rowell looked into that, too, and, and, and from what he could tell, again, it was another unknown. So uh, I, I have all these people around me having sightings, but I don't. I haven't had one. I've never seen anything. Well, I was like you for for all my life. I've been interested in the topic. I grew up in in the Caribbean, so they call it one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle. So to me, always fascinated me living in there in the seventies and and hearing of all the UFO waves and and looking at a TV commercial one night where they were filming a rum commercial on the tallest building in Puerto Rico, and they left that camera on all night to make it like a 10-second commercial, you know, looking at the sun rising. And throughout the night, they had this light standing there that was going to the right and immediately turned left, and boom. And it was very close to my hometown, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this this thing is flying above, above my head. So that's what opened to me, but I never saw a UFO, probably until 2000 and. 10 or 11 when I went to the East 80 Ranch, and that's when I I can say I saw my very first one confirmed, and then I saw multiple ones in that same area. But my apologies, I'm looking at the book, page 17. I guess I read the page without noticing that what I was referring to, 7.30 p.m. December 1st, 2001, was a retired police officer in Australia. That's oh, one, of the right. story that you, one of the stories that you included in the book. But speaking of your daughter... We know as parents if our children are lying to us, and you have this this instinct. I mean, somebody who like you let's let's call you a, an open minded skeptic. How do you feel? I mean, that she was not lying because my conversation with Whitley Strieber it was mm-hmm. it, it was scary. What he and I discussed. I even have that on on a an audio clip on a preview that he says when you see a gray coming to your home and you cannot even move, and you see them taking your children away, and there's nothing you can do about it, that's when you'll know the, the, the reality of the grace. Now, what do you say about that? I say that's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Uh, I, I, I didn't even make it through communion. It, it scared the crap out of me. 
uh, Strieber is incredibly good at uh, capturing that feeling. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I I, uh, that, I think partly that's why I wrote that chapter on uh, fighting back uh, was because, yeah, maybe I, you know, I knew I know my daughter was scared about some of this stuff, and 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 my 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 friend his his kids are you know kind of scared about it. We try not to you know scare them, but at the same time, the truth is the kids like to be scared, so we we let them in on it. I think we all have that. You know, Dolores Cannon and I have had, had that conversation that, you know, being scared sometimes is kind of fun, going to the Haunted Mansion in Disney World and so on. It's fun. But it's not the terrifying feeling that most people have when they become completely paralyzed if what they're saying is true when they become abducted. But, uh, you know, like you, there's one case that for me, and since you were talking of Dr. John Mack, for me, this is absolutely a case that pushes the limits of skepticism, as you say, quote, in fact, it is so extraordinary that it tipped me into accepting that there is, in fact, sufficient eyewitness evidence to support the existence of gray aliens on Earth, unquote. And you're referring to the 1994 Harvard psychologist, Dr. John Mack, rest in peace, and his interview with school children in Zimbabwe who had witnessed a, 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 you know, at least 60 children who witnessed a saucer-shaped craft and grays you know, uh, in the schoolyard at recess, an alien uh, emerging from the craft and floating about. Why don't you refresh our, our listeners' memories about this important case? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1994, they're at this uh, colonial school in Zimbabwe, about, about 60 school children were out on recess, and they saw, like you said, uh, a... Uh, some kind of disc land and yeah little gray aliens came out and they communicated with the children um to some of them they told told them that the the world was uh, going to be destroyed by human activity um others told the children come with us um one of the children referred to the eyes of the gray as being evil um yeah, this this case did push me over into into just accepting it because, for one thing, I I, I do I do think that well I, I trust children, and I I, I don't think that uh, you know they're just all imagination. They're not. Uh, they're not little adults, <laughs> but they have their own experience of the universe, and it's valid. And what you were saying about being a parent, you know, and knowing the difference when your kid is telling you the truth or a lie and being able just to, you know, being able to tell that, hopefully. <laughs> um, but that's that's how I felt about this case. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was totally believable. Uh, there, were, there were too many witnesses. And uh, also, I'm, I'm biased towards believing children. So I'll, I'll admit that right up. No, that's fine. And they had the same story. They corroborated the same story individually. Yeah. So when you have different children speaking of the same situation, how can you not at least pursue it further? I wonder whatever happened, you know, with that story after Mac uh, died in mysterious circumstances. Well, I actually did see, and I think it was on YouTube, um, I did see 
a video about uh, the children who had grown up now and remember the incident very, very clearly. And they're still sticking to the same story. Love they're it. They're all grown up now, and they're saying, no, it really happened, and this is how it happened. That's great. I wish I could... Uh put a few of those children in a, in a roundtable discussion and discuss now from the perspective of being adults to discuss yeah. what happened. I mean, that would be really interesting because as children, they cannot verbalize a lot of what they saw and now they probably could. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember hearing Professor Michio, Michio Kaku discussing, you know, let E.T. alone. Don't be calling him because you never know what's going to happen if they show up. And the thought comes to mind when Christopher Columbus, which, by the way, was not the first one to come to the Americas, but that's a different story. The Europeans came along. We know what happened to the, the less advanced civilization. I mean, in the United States alone, 90-some percent of the, the indigenous population disappeared. So if we're in this grain of sand we call Earth, in this corner of the Milky Way galaxy, if we, if we start just sending messages out, which we have been doing for decades— are we opening the gates of hell? Are we opening the possibilities of somebody coming here and saying, wait a second, they have the resources that we need? Not that we wouldn't do the same thing, because I always say, say this, uh, Jordan, if we had to go to another planet because what they had there, we need to for us to survive, we wouldn't think twice to go and grab it. So I'm not going to be apologetic for the human race either, but you see where I'm coming from. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, that's that's been our history um, as well, at least as an agricultural species. That's uh, certainly been our history. So, yeah, no, I I, I see it the same way, Mel. <laughs> so, Michael, Professor Michael Zimmerman identifies the eye of the grace as the source of their power over human consciousness, and also uh, who concludes with them? Stephen Hawking's. He says. Uh, he has a warning to keep silent in the universe of invading species. But at the same time, you know, we look at the Drake equation. We looked at the, the billions of stars and probably the trillions of planets. And if the most common elements in intelligent life are nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, and the most common elements in our universe are the same nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon, why do you think that life started here and shouldn't evolution, call it Darwin or call it what you, what you wish, shouldn't evolution have brought civilizations in other planets to appreciate life and respect each other in a galactic basis? Well, that's, that idea is known as progressive evolution. And it's, that's basically the idea that as a species evolves more and more, and specifically you're talking about intelligent species, that they're going to evolve into some kind of uh, self-actualized, peaceful species. That's, I mean, that, that's, an, uh, that's intrinsic to the Drake equation. Uh, and, I, and I don't agree with that at all. I, I think that, uh, well, I know that evolution has many, many different trajectories for any given species. And in the book, I, I basically say that the greys have evolved to be apex predators and uh, that they're actually, you know, just one species among many in a much larger galactic ecology that we're not, we're not really aware of at this point.
We're just getting little little hints of it. Now, when you and this is a fascinating book discussing the evolution of of the grace, but just like we have in the twenty first century, I mean, look at the Terminator. Just that used to be just a movie, but right now we have we have robots that could behave like Terminator. Right, right. And Do we have drones? But we in the future, I see a soldier of the future being a mixture of, you know, biological and technological, you know, computerized and so on. Why is it unfathomable, and I keep using that word, that another more advanced civilization somewhere else, just like we would probably, I mean, look at us. We go to space, we spend three, four days in orbit, and we come back and our muscles are, you know, there's atrophy right. in our muscles. So these grays, I look at them, they're skinny, lack of uh, muscle mass, they lack, uh, you know, uh, excretory systems, uh, you know, they look like they have sunglasses, not the right, but sunglasses, no reproductive systems, no digestive system. Couldn't they be cloned biological robots that somebody uses for space travel in order to do their bidding? And it's not that they have evolved, it's just that the technology has improved where whoever's using them has made them that way. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible. Uh, I, I I would say that's a you know another good speculation out there. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. That's one one thing about my book that I want to make clear is that I'm not in that book. I'm not saying this is the way things are. I'm using Darwinism and evolutionary biology to uh, try to imagine. What, what things may be, because I mean, I, 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 you know, I've done my fair of dissections in life, but I've never dissected a gray, and <laughs> I've never been able to watch their behavior on a nature show. So uh, I've had I've had to you know glean a lot from from uh, the readings and uh, from what folks have said about their behaviors and so forth, and 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 how they describe them, as you said, you know, very sinewy and so forth. And uh, it, it is, yeah. I mean, it, it's possible that 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 they are uh, some form of technology. I, I think I think one way or another, um, technology has definitely affected their evolution. You know, even even if we just stick with my idea that they're critters that did evolve, um, I still say that you know after that they 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 uh, use their technology to. Uh, to evolve as well. At some point, they've stopped being sexual. You mentioned no sexual organs and uh, no excretory organs. Um, so, you know, how, how is it that they metabolize? You know, how do they get their energy and and how do they get rid of the waste? I mean, that's that's got to happen. Even if it's a, if, even if it's a robot, I mean, it's got to you know use up a battery and plunk out an old one or something. Well, if you look at plants, I don't think they excrete. They basically use the energy of the sun or light photosynthesis in order to, to metabolize their energy. Why couldn't they be somehow related? And if you see those big eyes, could it be? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you and I are speculating here. I know that you're not trying to, to knock down any anybody's uh, theories. You're not proselytizing either, and I appreciate that. No. But um, Thank you. You, 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 you bet, you bet. Uh, but the black eyes, sometimes I wonder, could it be that they're using light as their energy? Because as you say, you know, I've asked this question to many abductees, people who have come on the record on the show and a majority who has never got on the record. And I asked them the same question. It sounds humorous, 
But I asked him, you know, please describe the, the craft that you were taking to if you were able to see. And the question is always the same for me. Did you ever see a bathroom? And the answer is no. So what are these people doing? And that's why I'm always fascinated by the fact that they use their energy at 100% efficiency rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I came up with an idea for the Greys that, that would explain, that would keep them a critter and explain how they're not actually digesting anything. And uh, the idea is that um, basically they have uh, bacteria within their cells and these bacteria are able to break down, um, like hydrocarbons, which have really, or, or I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm uh, hydro, hydrogen sulfide, which is a uh, chemical that's spewed from uh, uh, underwater vents on the seafloor. And uh, anyway, it's it, so I, I'm speculating that the grays have some form of bacteria in them that's able to break down these 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 uh these uh compounds with 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 strong chemical bonds and that would give them this is called chemosynthesis and this 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 would give them probably enough energy to uh do what they do photosynthesis for for a critter that big probably wouldn't provide enough energy unless they'd really you know souped it up which you know is a possibility now, we're going to discuss the grays even more in detail, but I want to know about your story. And I think this is you. This is page 30. Tell us about your dreams where you experienced sleep paralysis. That was you, right? Oh, that was me, yes. Okay. And also, what did your medical doctor say after you told them about your gray dreams? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, the dreams, um, I had one that I that I know was sleep paralysis, and and. That's because, I mean, I, I wasn't able to move. I had a sense that there was some kind of presence just outside. Um, and the reason I'm able to realize that that was sleep paralysis is because I wasn't able to move. Um, I wasn't able to, you know, kind of get myself out of the state. And even though I sensed this malevolence, um, when I woke up, I was able to realize that's what they're talking about when they talk about sleep paralysis. But I've had other dreams uh, with grays in them that were not sleep paralysis, and they were they were very 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 real and terrifying. Uh, one, I was at my friend's house, and uh, all of a sudden there were these two grays just right in my face, and they were they were they were, they were just kind of like you know peering peering in at me, one at you know first one then the other. Uh, that was kind of scary, and. But the the dream that really scared me was I was uh, sleeping and I woke up, or I thought I woke up, and uh, saw about five grays standing at the foot of my bed, and uh, yeah, just utter terror, total terror. Do you think grays are simply? And before I say this, mm-hmm. I'm neutral. I've talking, I've talked to people who say that the grays are the most wonderful, peace loving creatures in the universe. And I've spoken to people like you who say that, uh, and and I want to leave the revenge revenge part of the of your book to the end because I think it's very interesting. Okay. Uh, if you sleep next with your gun and a concrete block or maybe a bat, we'll leave that for later. But I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. I haven't experienced them, 
I think there's duality or polarity in the entire world. There's night and day, good and bad everywhere. So I'm not going to say that every single being out there outside of the planet is is bad. But, you know, I want to explore every area. Do you think grays are simply masters of deception? I do. I do. I, I completely agree with Carla Turner on this, that, uh, you know, they, they, they're using us for their own purposes. They really don't care how they hurt us. Um, I, I personally think they're enjoying it. I, I think that's one of the only emotional responses they're able to get from themselves is enjoying the pain of others. Uh, and, and again, that's, that's, that's just been from a reading of the literature. And, and, and you're right. I mean, there is the other side saying that the Greys are our benevolent space brothers and so forth. But I, I just simply didn't find, in, in, in all of my research, I did not find enough evidence to convince me of that at all. You know, when I think of two people, I think of, Doc, and, and if you can, tell the audience in a moment who Car- Dr. Carla Turner was. But when I think of Carla Turner, I th- also think of Phil Schneider. And they both have to, to have, happen to have died in less than a year from each other. Uh, Schneider dying in 1995, I believe, and um, Turner dying in 1996. Who was, for the people who may not know who Dr. Carl Turner was, who was she? Well, uh, she was a serial abductee. Um, her, uh, these abductions uh, occurred in her entire family and for decades, and they were um, extremely intrusive. And the, the thing that, 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 that attracted me to Dr. Carla Turner was I, I saw her on, uh, on YouTube. She was giving a, I believe she was speaking to MUFON. And what, what really got me about her was um, her honest anger about it. She was, she, was, she was really angry about the trespasses that the Greys had taken on her and her family. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a ufologist, you know, take a stand like that. I, I, I hadn't, hadn't gotten deeper into it yet. And uh, so I, yeah, I read her, her three books, you know, Into the Fringe, Taken, and uh, Masquerade of Angels. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced by Carla Turner. I think and, she has a good case. And a lot of people, and, and if anybody has hasn't heard the story. I mean, there are plenty of videos out there, but we also did an interview about Phil Schneider not too long ago. And, and I'm not, I don't remember if I included the pictures, but I have pictures of, uh, of, you know, when he was found. And when you see those pictures, there's no way that he could have committed suicide the way that was. And I'm right. not saying that everything he said was was completely accurate, and this is a problem that many people have, including, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, people like Billy Meyer. They may come out and, you know, have some truth, but then all of a sudden, to build more audience, they they may exaggerate, and gosh, please stop doing that, because that, that makes everybody question your entire story. But yeah. gra- gra- granted, I think Dr. Tyler Turner, you know, had a great story, but many people think that there's only a few people who have died investigating all of this, but it was, I think, Otto... Otto Binder, in 1971, he wrote a, an article for Saga magazine in, uh, titled Liquidation of UFO Investigators, and he mentioned that no less than 137 flying saucer researchers, writers, scientists, and witnesses died 
in the previous 10 years, and many under the most mysterious circumstances. And yeah, we all get cancer and heart attacks, but it all happens at the same time and really quickly. Heart attacks, suspicious cancers, and what appears to be outright examples of murder. And a lot of these are discussing the negative aspect of aliens. So it makes you wonder, those people who talk about aliens being this new agey form of love, you know, let's all meditate our problems away and don't worry about the wars. That's Those are alive and kicking, selling their books just fine. But the ones who discuss the negative part seem to be the ones who get harassed the most. And that to me, and again, I'm neutral, that catches my attention. What do you say about that? No, I totally agree. I, I've, I've noticed that, that myself, that uh, um, there really is a, a strong desire to believe in beneficent aliens. And I think, you know, it, you know even, even in the face of uh, what we see from alien abductions, uh, you know, we could go into the mutilation cases, uh, we could talk about aircraft that have been blown out of the sky. We can talk about nuclear missiles that have been put on, you know, active status. Um, these are not friendly things. Uh, it's, it's not a friendly thing to abduct somebody and, 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 uh, then probe them. What, whatever their purposes are, um, I, I don't see them as being friendly. Uh, for one thing, this this constant showing us our future of you know total environmental degradation, a dead planet, and so forth. Well, then help us. <laughs> then help us. But as I as, as I wrote, they haven't even recycled a single aluminum can. So yeah. I don't I don't think they're here to help us. <laughs> And we don't need aliens to tell us that we are in deep, deep, you know what, environmentally. I mean, it's it's a fact. The scientists are, are, are warning all the time. So why would we need another alien warning? We don't we don't need them to tell tell us what's going on. We know what's going on. And by the way, it, both Carla Turner and Phil Schneider died in 1996. I was wrong on the dates. They they, they died in the same year. But yes, I you know, and I've interviewed people that on this very show who discuss what you're just saying. At the beginning, they feel violated. Anybody would feel violated if all of a sudden you're taking from your your bed against your will if they supposedly respect free will. Really, they do. So they don't even ask you a question. They just take you, paralyze you. But eventually, they say, "Look, this is just like a tortoise, a, a turtle that's moving across the highway. You stop your car. You you carry the tortoise or the turtle to safety, and you move on. And the turtle goes back to the family, peace." And excretes and goes back and says, "Oh my goodness, I see these people in a in a you know on a vehicle or they big people, ugly people. They carry me and they put me away. I'm so scared." When in reality, we were helping the animal. Do you think that we may be experiencing the same? That they're here to watch over us, and they have been here for say what eight million years. If that's the case, why haven't they taken over? So. That's when I, I gravitate back and forth thinking, you know, are they our watchers? Are they trying to see where we go? I, yeah, I, I, I kind of think 
that they're here for for us. Um, it's, as far as you know, any other natural resource, you know, like for example, if they wanted water or something, if they were here for the water, they they, they can get all the water they want, you know, from the rings of Saturn. <laughs> It'd be a lot easier. Um, so yeah, I, I think that they're here because of us, and I think that they're here to. Uh, Frankly, frankly, I, I, I think that they're just here to uh, to torture us and to watch us go extinct and to just have a really great time in the, in, in, in the whole deal. What about those visions that so many people discuss, that they show, you know, a hologram of the future where they see the planet dying and the way we're treated and so on? And like you, if they came all the way here with their, their technology, either... <laughs> Either they just want to teach us that we can fix, you know, take up, pick up the trash and teach the whole saying of, uh, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, you feed him for life. Are they trying to teach us how to fish so that we can pick up the trash and, and, and settle our own problems ourselves? Because I, it makes no sense that if they have the technology to come here and you and I, And our children, we want to leave a better world for, for our children. I, I know that anybody who's listened to us would like to do that. Right. But there's a, a minority up on the top, and let's not, I hate to give him the credit for that, but there's a minority out there that is exploiting and violating the planet to their advantage and not allowing us to really take over and, and clean it ourselves. Why don't they get involved and say, enough? If they're truly, they truly have the technology and the evolution to see what's right and what's wrong. Right, I agree. If they if they had compassion, empathy, affection, then we may expect them to help us in certain ways. But uh, I, I I have not I have not read a single account about abductions in which they have helped the human race. Uh, let's see, I, I there, there was one abduction I read where. A woman's gallstones were, were cured. The, but that's it. That's the only positive thing I've ever found. Here's an idea. Uh, with the, you know, I, I was mentioning the, the robots, you know. 21st century, we have robots. Uh, they have their advanced technology. But we have drones, as you say. There's somebody behind a drone with a joystick somewhere else bombing somewhere in the Middle East right now. Yeah. Who could be behind their quote-unquote joystick? Or could they be avatars or somebody else? You mean the grays? Yeah, certainly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's possible too. Uh, I mean, because there there are... When it gets really complicated, then, then we get all these different species that people start talking about, like the reptilians and the mantids and the tall whites and on and on. And... Uh, Boy, I I, I I don't know. I don't know if if I really believe that. I think I think they might be screen images that the Greys are using, um, or or otherwise we're seeing uh, uh, perhaps variation within their species. Uh, I, I, but I think that more than one apex predator competing for a single planet. I think we probably know. I think that. Uh, if they really were fighting it out for this planet, I think we'd probably know. So my guess is that it's just kind of the grays. They're hanging out here. Um, they're well hidden. They've been here for a very long time. 
they've been messing with us, as I say in my book, they've been messing with us for about 8 million years. And uh, I guess I guess that they're just uh, riding out our, 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 our last hour together. <laughs> they must have, let me, let me say that they must have, a, their lifespan must be really, really high because if we were, say, going to another planet and we're watching the people, the, 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 the inhabitants of the planet decimate themselves, just like they're probably watching us decimate ourselves with war and famine and you name it, if they've been here for 8 million years or more and have more advanced technology, why in the world haven't they taken over? Okay, I you know, I think they have taken over. It's just it's kind of like it's kind of like when Neanderthal was beginning to go extinct. They at first they had a fairly wide range from Middle East all the way to Western Europe. And then a new species showed up, Homo sapiens sapiens. And in only about 20,000 years, we genetically assimilated them, and then finally, the last true Neanderthals were pushed to the tip of Gibraltar, and poof, gone about 30,000 years ago. Now, now they're not extinct fully, because we have, you know, some of their genes in us, so, um, but I think that, I think that it might be similar to what the greys are doing with hybridization. Um, so in other words, we're the Neanderthals, they're the Homo sapiens, uh, they're breeding with us, and, and I, I believe it's Dr. Dr. David Jacobs who, who, who thinks that basically, uh, this is, uh, 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 basically going to be before a, uh, before they do completely take over. And at that point, it would be the hybrids, uh, replacing human beings on this planet. And I have to tell you, when I interviewed uh, Professor Jacobs, I thought the idea was a, a bit absurd, and I thought it was fear-mongering, but as time has gone by, I see the plausibility of that scenario. I do really see it. If they have been, for so, have been here for so long, then, you know, why is it that we have... You know, sometimes I have this conversation with other people, especially the religious ones who say, male, we all come from the same people, Adam and Eve. Like, okay, really? Honestly, then why do we have Caucasoid? Why do we have Mongoloid? Why do we have Negroid and Australoid? Did all they, did they come from Adam and Eve? I don't think so. Do you think that, what's your theory on how we have all these different races, the, 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 the Caucasoid, Mongoloid, Negroid, and Australoid? Okay, actually, okay, I used to teach a class on this, so I'm, I'm pretty good at it. In fact, in fact, there is no such thing biologically as human race. It doesn't exist. Uh, race was an idea uh, that um, the Europeans had when they started their world expansion. And basically, what they thought when they went to different parts of the world is they saw people who looked very different from them. And so they thought, well, these people must have had a separate origin from us. Um, in fact, that's not true. The, all, all human beings have a uh, common ancestor in East Africa 50,000 years ago. Every, everybody on the planet. 
And uh, as, as far as race goes, it's really a uh, socially constructed idea. Um, what you'll see in people uh, are adaptations to specific environments. And that can be very, very fluid. For example, let's just say you start at, uh, uh, in, in northern France, and, and you're going on foot, and you start heading south. Well, in northern France, people look pretty pasty white and so forth. And as you move down to southern France, well, maybe, maybe, maybe the skin color is a little darker, but you probably haven't been able to tell the gradation from north France to southern France. And then let's just say you go into Spain and so forth and down into Portugal, and the skin colors are getting increasingly darker as you approach the equator. And that's, human race does not exist. What does exist are adaptations to local environments of those human populations. And that's a really important point in science, anthropology, the study of humans, is that there is no such thing as race when you're speaking are biologically. You talking about natural selection, for example, if you have you know, two white bears in Alaska in the winter and you drop mm -hmm. a, you know, two black bears, which one is the one that's going to survive? The white bear, because it can camouflage with the, with the, uh, with the snow. And could the same thing would be, you know, be for the Nordics if they're in, you know, say Scandinavia, where they're, they're better when, you know, not better when I say better, I mean, they can, they can fend better with the climate, with their color, with their blue eyes. So they can, you know, see, and then you have the darker colors down in the warmest, warmer areas. Are you saying that? But shooting, the features remain the same. Why are the features different, different with Asians, the blacks, and so on? Right. Well, the features are different based on selection pressures in specific environments. So, for example, the reason that you've got, I mean, we, every human on this planet had dark skin until populations began to move out of Africa. Now, the most, most of the population stayed there, but certain populations moved out into the Middle East, Asia, and uh, then into Europe. And as they did so, moving up the latitudes, uh, the incidence of sunlight hitting the Earth, of course, is, 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 is at a much uh, lesser angle than at the equator. What it turns out, we're talking about just skin color here. That's all we're talking about. Skin color is selected for by how intense ultraviolet radiation is. So darker skin is protecting the lower levels of skin from mutagenic radiation. That's, that's the reason why there's dark skin. Now, the reason why there's light skin is because in those higher latitudes where there's lower incidence of sunlight, uh, vitamin D doesn't get produced as much because there's not as much sunlight. And where selection occurs is at the level of the fetus. So say you have a, a, a woman, she's living in the upper latitudes, and she's pregnant. If she has darker skin color, she will not be getting as much vitamin D from the sun and therefore, she will probably have a spontaneous abortion. And that's how, that's how evolution has selected for different skin colors. 
and that's a that that's just one system, and it's it's a very very uh, obviously visible system, and so forth. But if if you were to say you had a, a pair of magic glasses where you could see people as DNA, if you put those glasses on and looked at everybody around you, they would look almost identical. The differences the differences that we have are very, very superficial, extremely superficial, even though they may look large, like, you know, a different color or, or a different uh, kind of hair, so forth and so on. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, are you indirectly saying that if, let's say, you are in African, the, the, the lower latitudes of Africa, and you spend generation after generation, your body produces more melanin in order to protect, to protect you from the, the, the uh, UV rays. Is the sun basically changing or altering your DNA code so that new progeny can be born with a color without having to always be adapting? Like if I go to, you know, to the beach, it's going to take me a couple of days before I can build a suntan. But if I am there day in and day out, is my DNA changing to my progeny in the future so that it can permanently have that color? That's, that's a really great question. And the, the short answer is no. There, 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 there are two, two reaction levels, basically, for an organism. The one you're talking about is at the individual level where, yeah, if you, if you do live in a place where it's sunny all the time, and you know you're you're lighter skinned you are going to get a tan and it probably will eventually if you live there your whole life it'll become a permanent tan but there's no way for that change in your body to get the genes to the sex cells to pass it on to the next generation <clears throat> so what has to happen is let's just say we've got a population on the equator And within that population, there's variation of skin color. Some are lighter, some are darker. Well, the, the lighter folks, selection is going to cut them out because the, 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 the equatorial sun is simply going to be too much for them. Uh, it, will, it will burn them. Uh, if you're burned, you don't really feel like reproducing. So that right there is a, a pressure. And uh, also, as we know, burns can lead later toward to uh, 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 cancer, possibly. Well, that's a different. Answer, that that's a different story. Yeah, you did, yes, you did, you did. The best of your ability. Uh, okay. I'm just trying to understand that and the features. For example, you have the more pronounced noses. You have the smaller noses in the north, and I wonder if that has to do with the climate when you have very hot climate. Oh man! See, this, I, I studied exactly this. I, I was, I was a, a research assistant for my professor at university, and, and this is what she studied: was how natural selection affects uh, nose shape and volume. And uh, it, it, it's 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 really fascinating. It has it has a lot to do with, uh, for example, folks who live in like equatorial Africa. They'll have um, noses that are broad. With, with large um, nostrils. And basically that is to allow the, the hot air to come in and then the nose moistens the air 
and then pulls it into the lungs. And it's the same thing for uh, in in northern climates. Uh, the, the 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 noses are generally longer, and that's to warm up the air and also to moisten it before it comes into the lungs. So yeah, the natural selection of of, of the nose shape is just incredibly uh, uh, entertaining. But I I know that you probably don't want me to go on. About no, that's okay. It's okay. I'm always I've always been fascinated by that. I mean, what I I like to know what makes things tick. Why are people looking like this? Where did they come from? You know, the the, the shapes of, of their bodies. You know, why is it that some people are different? You know, why are the Asian people have their eyes the way they do? And we're told that, um, you know, we come from the same place. And, you know, I'm still not too unclear, but hopefully one day we'll get the answer. But, you know, at the point that I was reading your book, I definitely sense right from the beginning that you have some hatred for the grays. And I want to get your answer on the other side, even though you've mentioned some of your feelings about that. Was the emotion a result of the testimony that you investigated, or was it based on your own experiences? You know, what your your daughter saw, what your best friend saw, what your dad saw, the dreams you had. We are and always have been at the mercy of the grays, you say. But I'll get your reaction on the other side. We have so much more to discuss when we come back. We have even based on your research, instructions on how to mitigate an abduction and the things that you can do using a Faraday case or a, a uh, how do you call it, the 3M uh, Velostat. 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 Yeah. Exactly. We'll discuss that <laughs> when we come back. How can people buy evolutionary ufology, Saucerville, and any other work that you have? Just go to Amazon and uh, type in my name, Jordan Hofer, and there's an author central page and that, that'll keep anybody up to date on uh, whatever I'm doing. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is a, a non-traditional discussion. I've never had this discussion with a, a, somebody discussing evolution and anthropology when it comes to ufology. And also I'd like to discuss if the greys, where are they hiding? Are they hiding the far side of the moon? Maybe underwater? Think about the expanse of, of our planet. What a perfect way to hide when you're underwater. And if they have their bodies the way they do, maybe, maybe they cannot sustain living on the surface. And that's why a lot of people see them at night and living underwater or under caves will be a, a very good scenario for them to, to live at. But much more, more, when we come back, I'm here with my special guest, Jordan Hofer, author of Evolutionary Ufology. Folks, don't go anywhere. Much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy! If there isn't light when no one sees Then how can I know what you might believe A story 
be real Somehow must reflect the truth we feel